This episode of Crosscut Talks is supported by Alaska Airlines. Hey, welcome to Crosscut Talks. I'm Mark Baumgarten, the managing editor at Crosscut. And today we're talking about a revelation and how new knowledge about the past can change the conversation and maybe the course of a country. The revelation here, though, is something that was hidden in plain sight. All Americans, more or less, understand that slavery is a part of the American story. But until a few years ago, slavery's fixed place in the American imagination had rarely been expanded on or challenged, in the popular consciousness anyway. There was very little public conversation about how exactly it came to be, and how the legacy of such a brutal, oppressive institution shaped the next 400 years of American life, up to this very day. That all changed with the publication of The 1619 Project, a massive work of journalism created by today's guest, Nicole Hannah-Jones. Launched by the New York Times in 2019, the project puts black Americans at the center of the American story starting with the arrival of the White Lion, a ship that carried captive Africans to the shores of what would become the United States in 1619, a year before the Mayflower. The project has become a major text for the racial reckoning that has unfolded in the years since, and it's been met with severe resistance from some quarters. And it's not done. Hannah Jones published a book version of the project last fall and is currently at work on a documentary series based on the project, all of which she explores in this conversation with University of Washington professor Christopher Sebastian Parker, which took place in early May in front of a live audience at Town Hall Seattle as part of the 2022 Crosscut Festival. I want to add here that this is a serious conversation, but it's also, at times, a really fun conversation. You can sense Hannah Jones feeding off the crowd. There's a lot of goodwill in the room. And it's worth noting that this is the first time in three years that we've had a crowd for a festival session. And it's really something special to hear people in the room responding to Hannah Jones's insights. This conversation and all other conversations on the keynote track at the 2022 Crosscut Festival is sponsored by BECU, which would like to share the following message. BECU believes that every forward thinker deserves added momentum, so for over 85 years they have offered financial services and support to the community. Members have access to local financial centers, over 30,000 ATMs through the co-op network, and online resources. BECU is a member-owned credit union that puts people over profit. Learn more at BECU.org. Federally insured by NCUA. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Oh, and one other note, this talk does contain some profanity. If you have any feedback, please send it to talks at crosscut.com. Okay, on with the show. Nicole Hannah-Jones, welcome to the Crosscut Festival. Thank you. 
All right. Um, so now that we are officially on CP time, <laughs> we had a little discussion about that backstage. <laughs> it wasn't us. We were on time. <laughs> so I'd like to start with a uh, recent exchange you had with Chris Wallace on the subject of democracy. And basically, you made a claim with which I, I completely agree that absent black folks, we wouldn't have a democracy. Can you elaborate on that, please? Okay, that's going to be a whole lecture. So please, we're, gonna, we're only going to get one, one question. Um, honored to be on stage with you. Thank you, everyone, for coming out. I know there's not much, much else to do in Seattle anyway, so <laughs> just fine, just fine, just fine, just fine, just fine. Just kidding, just kidding. I mean, we, we're going to start out spicy, so let's just... Um... Hey, wait, wait, wait a minute, Nicole. <laughs> this ain't Portland, right? This is not Portland. <laughs> That's not dissing me. I got the hell out of Portland. So um, anyway, it is good to be back in the Pacific Northwest to visit. Um, <laughs> uh, it, it is the most beautiful uh, part of the country. It's the most beautiful place I ever lived. And I'm, I'm always grateful that people want to come and hear me talk about the legacy of slavery and anti-blackness. So uh, happy to be here. And um, so yes, as you know from your own work, uh, um, the argument in the opening essay for the 1619 Project, the essay is called Democracy. And for people who have studied this history, it's not a radical essay at all. Um, because we know that we were not a democracy at our founding. In fact, our founders didn't intend for us to be a democracy. And uh, certainly, um, while we have these grand visions of who we were at that moment of our founding, the lofty ideals of the Declaration. We hold these truths to be self-evident. All men are created equal, endowed by the Creator with unalienable rights. The man who wrote those words owned 200 human beings at the time that he wrote those words. The man who wrote those words brought his enslaved brother-in-law, uh, who was the half-black son of his wife, with him um, to keep him comfortable as he was writing these words of liberty. And we have been taught that it is incidental that so many of our founders uh, engaged in human trafficking. We have been taught that it's incidental that the man who wrote the Declaration's occupation was to enslave people. That was his job. That's what he did for a living. That's how he made his money. Um, the father of the Constitution, enslaver. Drafter of the Bill of Rights, enslaver. First president, enslaver. Um, 10 of our first 12 presidents, enslavers. And yet, we have been led to believe that that was incidental to the country we would become, and that we were somehow a democracy even though uh, women couldn't vote, uh, white men who were poor couldn't vote, black people certainly couldn't vote, we weren't even considered part of the body politic, and indigenous people were also not considered part of the United States. And um, So the beauty of it is, though, that even though Black people were not included in those words of the Declaration. Black folks who either could read or who heard about the Declaration said, oh, this is a liberty document. You can't argue that all men are created equal and enslave us. And black people saw those words and have fought generation after generation to make those words manifest. We have been, uh, as I argue, based on the work of everyone from Du Bois going forward, that black Americans have been the primary democratizing force in this country. And how can you argue factually 
otherwise. You can't. Um, because all of our great expansions of democracy have come on the back of black resistance and black freedom struggles. And initially when I uh, plan to make that argument uh, in the book or in the original project initially, I was thinking about the period of the civil rights movement. And of course how we don't have a democracy until 1965 with the passage of the Voting Rights Act. But then I realized you have to go back way earlier than that. You have to really go back to the beginning. Uh, there's a great book by uh, Woody Holton um, that just uh, came out a few months ago where he argues that it was a, a black person who turned the Declaration into a liberty document. Mm -hmm. That if you know your history, uh, which we're Americans, so you probably don't, um, <laughs> but if, if you know your history, the Declaration is a succession document, right? The Declaration of Independence is uh, laying out, it's a colonist, the white colonists laying out all of the reasons they think that they should break off from the British Empire, that these are all of the crimes, these are all of our grievances. It wasn't a liberty document. We think about it that way. We think about that opening stanza. But the whole rest of the document is just them listing all of the things that they think the Crown has done, um, including riling up enslaved people to lead insurrections against their enslavers, um, and including not allowing them to steal more indigenous land. So these are all in our Declaration uh, of Independence, but a black man read those words and said, I don't care about all the rest of that. Those opening stanza um, are incompatible with slavery, that you can't make those arguments. And again and again, black people fought in every single war that this country has ever waged. Um, I opened that essay with my father, um, a veteran like you who flew the American flag in the front yard and as a black girl I didn't understand how a black man born into apartheid in Mississippi um, would fly the flag in the That's front right. yard That's right. and um, came to realize that what my father was laying claim to was a type of patriotism that we don't like to acknowledge in this country. Um, black people have to be the greatest patriots that our country has ever produced because how do you fight on behalf of a country that has never treated you as citizens? Um, how do you believe in founding ideals that didn't include you? And how do you not only fight uh, for your own rights, but for the expansion of rights for all marginalized people in this country? Um, and so that's the argument that I was making to Chris Wallace, which he was okay with that argument. Mm -hmm. What he wasn't okay with, of course, was imagining that all of these great men of the greatest generation, the World War II generation that we like to think of as, as helping to save democracy in the rest of the world, were violently suppressing democracy at home for black Americans. And black Americans were going abroad and fighting to liberate others, and then coming home and being lynched for wearing their uniform. And this is, this is how we have to think about America is with all of that hypocrisy, complexity, that nuance, and holding in our head, you know, he, he he said, yes, our government was racist. Mm -hmm. That's what he but said. But those individuals couldn't have been racist. <laughs> Except the people are the government, right? <laughs> and the man who lynched Emmett Till was a World War II veteran. The man who shot Megger Evers, assassinated Megger Evers, World War II veteran, right? And, and we have to be able to hold both of these truths or all of these truths in our head at the same time. Um, but what I'm really trying to argue, I know, see, I told you it's going to be the whole lecture, <laughs> um, is how would we think differently about black Americans if 
instead of always engaging us as a problem that needs to be resolved, mm -hmm. as problematic people, mm -hmm. right, who need to be fixed. Um, if you center us as actually the perfectors of our democracy, the mm -hmm. people who actually have believed in our country's highest ideals, so much so that we join the service at the highest rates of all yep. racial groups. Mm -hmm. So you think every time you hear a statistic about black disproportionality, out of wedlock births, poverty, crime, you hear all these stats about how we're disproportionately represented, but you never hear how we're disproportionately represented in those who are willing to lay down their lives and die for their country. You never hear that. A woman after my own heart. Okay. <laughs> Unbelievable, that was great. And That's yet, what most men say. So. <laughs> have a good time. We can, okay, talk, about, okay. Okay. <laughs> oh, we we, can we, talk about heavy subjects and have a good time, we, right? We, we got to start it in the green room, y'all. We got to start it in the green room. I shouldn't room. have had that second glass of wine. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, uh. Um, but just briefly to circle back, yeah, for black people, <laughs> democracy has often been aspirational, right? So if you think about this book that was written in 1944, Gurner Meridal's um, mm -hmm. An American Dilemma, mm -hmm. um, and I remember reading this a long time ago, and it was often the black people who had so much faith in America, black Southerners, right? And I could not understand that for the yes. life of me. But again, as Nicole said, you know, democracy for us has generally been aspirational. Um, and, she, and there's always these people um, going around saying, ooh, America's the longest democracy. No, it's not. No. no, it's not. As Nicole said, 1965, period. You guys need to burn that into your brain, right? We are not the longest continuous democracy, Fact. period. He just okay. had to get that out. <laughs> <laughs> no, it just makes me mad when I talk to these political scientists. Oh, we're no, we're not. <laughs> right. Okay. Okay, sorry. <laughs> All right. So now we get to the crux of the, crux of the issue here. What motivated the 1619 Project? Mm, um, so I'm going to give two answers. Um, the petty answer is that the 1619 Project is the answer to every time a black person has been told slavery was a long time ago, why don't you get over it? So, and it was the answer one, let's just be clear, nobody wants to get over slavery more than black people, right? <laughs> like, it does not benefit us. And we would wish not to live under the yoke of the anti-blackness, uh, the inequality being at the bottom of every single indicator of well-being um, that all comes because we are descendants of American slavery and had the audacity to survive the end of slavery, right? Mm -hmm. So um, this project seeks to answer that question by saying you can't get over an institution that is foundational to the very country that we live in, that almost nothing, right? The English landed Jamestown in 1607. It only takes 12 years before they begin engaging in African slavery. So there's almost nothing older in the original 13 colonies than African slavery. 250 years we had African slavery, we've had 150 years without slavery, which means we had slavery longer than we didn't, 
Slavery was foundational to almost every institution that would come out of the original 13 colonies. Um, and so obviously it shapes our society in all of these ways. And so if you, if you haven't read the book, people often talk about it as a history. It's not a history. It is a work of journalism that is talking about our society today that says, look at democracy, look at capitalism, look at why you're stuck in traffic because our very highway systems were created to segregate black people from white people. Our, the American diet, healthcare, that all these areas of our lives are being shaped by the legacy of slavery and the anti-blackness that uh, rose up to justify slavery, even when we don't acknowledge it, that this, this foundational institution is shaping our society, it is ordering our lives, our most vexing, uh, tensions are, you know, all the ways that we're exceptional in ways that we shouldn't be proud. Mm -hmm. You know, we're the most carceral nation in the world. Mm -hmm. In the world. Um, we have, we are the most unequal society in the history of the world. We have great wealth and the highest rates of poverty of any of the Western industrialized nations that we like to compare ourselves to. We're the only one of the Western democracies where whether you can go to the doctor or not depends on if your job offers you health care. Mm -hmm. Uh, no universal childcare. The only one of these soci uh, societies where a woman has to go back to work in six weeks after she has a baby because she doesn't get any income. Um, all of these things can be traced back to slavery. And so it's shaping our society, but we're not acknowledging the way that it's shaping our society. So that is why I wanted to produce this project. Um, I came across the date 1619, when I was 16 years old in high school. I grew up um, in Iowa, very cosmopolitan, diverse state. Um, <laughs> and and <laughs> I was bused into white school starting in the second grade. So there weren't a lot of black folks, but there was still enough to segregate us. And um, my um, school district, entered into a voluntary desegregation program to avoid being sued um, by the Department of Justice. And so we were bused into white schools and my high school offered a one semester black studies course. And in that one semester, I learned more about the history and contributions of black Americans that I had learned my entire life. Mm -hmm. And you know, 16 is already that period of radicalization where you're starting to challenge, where you're starting to be skeptical. And I was angry because I, I just thought, you mean all this time we had all this history that could be taught. Um, black people had contributed things, not just in the United States, but across the globe. And I realized that that information had been withheld mm -hmm. intentionally, that people knew this, but hadn't taught it to us. And so I uh, became obsessed with learning the history. And I would ask Mr. Dial, who was the only black male teacher I ever had, who taught that class to give me books to read. And he put Before the Mayflower into my hands. Mm -hmm. And it changed my life. Mm -hmm. um, because about 30 pages in is when he talked about the White Lion in 1619, which is the name of the ship that brought those first enslaved Africans to um, Point Comfort in Virginia. And then I realized what the cover of the book was talking about. I thought before the Mayflower was talking about Africa, but before the Mayflower was talking about an American history. And we all learned the story of the Mayflower and the Pilgrims in 1620, but the White Lion, which was much more important to the American story, I would argue, than the Mayflower, right? It, it introduces slavery. Slavery is the thing that almost destroyed our nation. Um, was completely erased from the story. So this project was about forcing a reckoning with who we really are as a country or attempting to. Um, 
and trying to stamp the year 1619 into the national lexicon to force us to grapple. 1619, the anniversary was the 400th anniversary of American slavery. Mm -hmm. There's nothing in America that's 400 years old, mm -hmm. but slavery is. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Wow. Okay, that's, yeah. I actually had another question that I was going to ask you about. What were the 1619 Project's goals, and have they been a, uh, achieved or realized? <laughs> I think you kind of bled, the, your response sort of bled into that a little bit, but can you elaborate? So what, what were, so if you were to think about what is, so one of which is, of course, to have the year 1619 yes. indelibly stamped on the American psyche, right? So that, I, 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 think, I think the audience would be with me. I think you achieved that. <laughs> yeah. So are there any, any, other, any other goals? Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, that, that was, uh, I remember when I, when I pitched the project um, and my editor asked me what was the goal and that was the goal. And it, it seemed uh, ridiculously aspirational at the time mm -hmm. that you could produce a, a work of journalism that could actually force a, you know, a date and a, and a moment into the national psyche. Um, and, and to even believe you could do that also would take a lot of hubris, right? So I was like, this is what my dream would be, but I didn't expect that, that we could actually accomplish that. Um, and to be clear, I mean, clearly I didn't invent 1619. And uh, Dr. King talked about 1619. Du Bois talked about 1619. He says, right, uh, before the pilgrims came, we were here. Mm -hmm. um, Langston Hughes, the opening poem in the book, the epigraph, is a poem about 1619. So black folks, scholars, activists have been talking about 1619 for a long time, but it didn't seem to permeate, right, the kind of national and collective memory of who we are as a country. So I definitely wanted to do that. Um, and then I have a, a, a much larger goal, um, which is not yet fulfilled, but if you read the very last essay in the book, it's very clear. The very last essay in the book is called Justice. And the larger goal is to finally uh, help propel us to reckon with what we've done and then to acknowledge that a great debt is owed to the descendants of American slavery and we repay that debt with reparations. So if you, if you permit me, I want to follow up on that. Mm -hmm. um, do you think if the, uh, the orange orangutan had not been in office when you published the 1619 Project? I don't know what you're talking about. Who are you talking would, about? Uh, number 45, <laughs> number 45, right? I won't say his name, right? Number 45. Would it have resonated as much, do you think? I mean, just speculate on that. No. Okay. <laughs> no, I mean, I, I thought a lot about that. Mm -hmm. And um, when the project came out, of course, Republicans accused me of creating the project just to harm Trump, as if I somehow um, forced the first Africans to be sold in 1619. <laughs> uh, the 400th anniversary fell when the 400th anniversary fell. It just mm -hmm. so happened to fall under the president who was a white nationalist mm -hmm. who followed up on a black, uh, the first black president. Um, but I do think there would have been a different response because as you know, as we were discussing backstage, um, for many white Americans, Obama was a gift because they, they wanted to believe that we had ushered in post-racialism, mm -hmm. right? That a, a black man ascending 
uh, to the White House meant that we had, we had resolved the race issue. Mm -hmm. And we don't want to hear about that anymore. Mm -hmm. um, whether I voted for him or not, he's there. Right. He shows America <laughs> is not racist anymore. Um, and this was happening, you know, not just conservatives, but lots of progressives, uh, people in the news media. So many of us journalists were trying to push back and say, no, like, Obama going to the White House didn't change anything on the ground for black people. The symbolism mattered for sure, but Trayvon Martin was killed under the Obama administration, right? Police were still killing black folks. Black folks were still the highest poverty rates. I mean, everything that existed before Obama was still existing in black America, but now we were being told, what are you complaining about? Mm -hmm. So I think had you tried, you know, had to publish the project under the Obama administration, if the anniversary had fallen then, folks would not want to be talking about slavery. Mm -hmm. They wouldn't want to be talking about the legacy of slavery because we have gotten beyond that. Mm -hmm. um, but of course, what happens in America is what always happens. There's racial progress and then there's racist progress. Mm -hmm. And we get Obama and then we get a white nationalist. <laughs> and suddenly all these folks who thought Obama had ushered in a new era of post-racialism were having the question, well, how do we, how does the same country do these two things back to back? Mm -hmm. um, and so they were looking for answers and the 1619 project gets published in that moment. Okay, thank you. Um, what would you say to the, well, I, I, Having spoken with you, spent some time chopping it up with you backstage, I know what you would say, right? But I'm just gonna ask this question anyway <laughs> for them. Uh, what would you say to those who say that your work has only deepened the polarization in an already polarized country? Go fly a kite, like something like that? <laughs> so it's always fascinating to me um, how people take silence as being peace. Right. So somehow, if this project didn't exist, we wouldn't be polarized. Mm -hmm. um, that if black people don't talk about the truth about our country, if we can continue to live in the fiction of, of uh, a country whose history we've learned that doesn't actually exist. Right. The history we've learned about America, that country does not exist. Mm -hmm. It has never existed. Mm -hmm. And that that's not polarizing, right? The lies, the omission, the manipulation of, of nationalism, that's not polarizing, but speaking the truth is. Mm -hmm. um, so of course you know what I would say to that. Um, <laughs> it's bullshit and it's tired. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> because, you know, to quote Dr. King, like the real Dr. King, not the I have a dream one line that everybody trots out once a year, <laughs> Dr. King, but he talks about the negative piece and that's what they want. They want, they want an, a negative piece that is predicated on us being silent about our conditions, us uh, telling lies about who we are as a country. I, I'm a journalist. That's not what I got into this to do. Um, and if you actually believe that we are a great country, a great country can withstand the truth. A great country doesn't have to lie about itself in order to exist. Uh, you know, Du Bois says it best. He, he says nations do great and nations do terrible things. And we have to own all of that. And I, I don't, um, I don't get the, the idea that if, if we are suffering in silence, that is how we, we unite. 
we are not, we are, we are not a united country. We have never been. And even when we talk about this idea of democracy, um, what we were was an ethnocracy, right? We were a democracy for white Americans. And this idea that we had less polarization in our politics, as you know, I always hate when I start talking to somebody's area of expertise, he's a political science. Um, but they were predicated on exclusion. So yes, we, we had less polarized politics in the 1950s. <laughs> I wonder why, <laughs> right? When you can exclude black people from voting, when you can exclude brown people from voting, when you can disempower women, when you don't have to deal with all these people um, whose politics are different than yours and whose perceptions about America and their wants are different from yours and it's only white men ruling, then yes, you, you might not be as polarized. <laughs> but that's a negative piece because you only get that, that veneer of tranquility by the violent suppression of, of, of us. And you want us to, um, to just remain hidden and invisible in our suffering. Mm -hmm. And I refuse to do that. That's right. That's right. We'll be back after these messages. Dreaming of a long-awaited vacation? Take your travels to the next level with Alaska Airlines. They're committed to providing a higher standard of safety and cleanliness throughout your journey. From mask requirements and touch-free options to HEPA filters on board and fresh air every two to three minutes. Plus, their award-winning loyalty program, Mileage Plan, makes it easy to earn and redeem miles wherever you go, including destinations worldwide, thanks to their One World Alliance membership. If you're ready to land a low fare, next-level care, and the best experience in the air, book now at alaskaair.com. When you think about institutions that are like a Langston Hughes Performing Arts Institute, the building, when you think about the Northwest African American Museum, when you think about the James and Janie Washington, when you talk about a Black Arts West and how they play into the community, it is the places that have helped community come together when no one else could, right? Those are places that have allowed for marginalized groups to come together and tear down the walls of not being your authentic self. Being a storyteller, Sharon Williams was able to capture what I'm trying to do with season one of the Black Arts Legacies podcast beautifully, so I had to let her tell it. I'm Brooklyn Jamerson Flowers, and this is season one of the Black Arts Legacies podcast a show from Crosscut exploring the history and ongoing impact of Black art and artists in Seattle. I just moved to Seattle, but in talking with Black artists, several spaces came up time and time again as critical to the legacy of Black arts here. So that's what this season is about. The Langston Hughes Performing Arts Institute, the James and Janie Washington Foundation, the Northwest African American Museum, and Black Arts West. Through conversations with artists and other people heavily involved in these institutions, we'll discuss how they were built, their value to the lives of artists, and what the future holds for each. You'll find a new episode every Wednesday in June, so hit that subscribe button wherever you listen and get hype. I know I am. So, um, as many of you know who have uh, read the 1619 Project um, or followed the 
the aftermath. Um, there has been like a really, to borrow a term from my colleague here, violent reaction um, to the publication of the 1619 Project. Um, and so we spoke about this briefly backstage um, about sort of like, so I guess my question is, is like, what if anything about the ensuing backlash wasn't anticipated? Um, much of it. <laughs> so I'm not naive. I knew that there would be backlash, of course. Um, I knew that there would be critique, as there should be. You don't produce something this ambitious um, in the New York Times and not expect critique. And I've never produced a single work of journalism that I thought was perfect and that I thought was above critique. Um, so I expected that. And then, of course, you don't argue in the New York Times that uh, we were founded as a slaveocracy and not a democracy, um, that our founders were grave hypocrites who didn't actually believe in the words they wrote, but black people did, and we're the perfectors of the democracy, and we're the true founding fathers of this nation. Right, 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 you don't right, do all right. of that and not expect there's going to be some pushback, right? So <laughs> I knew that. And, and right. frankly, had there not been pushback, the project would have failed because uh, we weren't trying to tell a comforting narrative of America. We were centering the people who have been forced to the margins. We are centering the people from, who have been treated as the bottom and saying, actually, these are the truest Americans because you wrote the words and had the power to implement them and chose not to. We had no power and yet fought right to democratize this entire country and died generation after generation to do so. So I knew there would be pushback for that. Again, even though, like anyone who has studied the field, it's not radical. Mm -hmm. It's based on six decades of scholarship, much of it done by black scholars, but not all of it, it's not radical. Um, so what I didn't expect though, was the intensity and the duration. Uh, I certainly didn't think the president of the United States would come after the project. Um, I didn't think that two of the most powerful senators in the country, Senators Tom Cotton and Senators, uh, Senator Mitch McConnell, uh, who both descend from enslavers, but I'm sure it has nothing to do with it, um, <laughs> that they would have a bill in Congress seeking to strip federal funds from any school district that teaches the 1619 Project. They say that the project the project will destroy the very foundation of America. Now, I am a badass journalist, but I'm not that bad. <laughs> I, I mean, I believe in the power of journalism, but if a single work of journalism can destroy the very foundation of the country, that country's not that strong in the first place. Um, uh, but to be very serious, um, you know, I became a target of the right. Um, Fox News, uh, other right-wing media threats, threats to burn down my mother's house, um, a severe targeting for the work because when Donald Trump and his sons and um, members of his administration go after your work in that way and these are people who stoke violence, then people threaten you with that violence. And um, right now, there are 38 states that have either passed uh, laws that, against the 1619 Project, um, prohibiting it from being taught, or against what they're calling critical race theory, but we know is just anti-history and anti-blackness. Mm -hmm. um, 38 states, that's more than half of the states that are mm -hmm. passing or considering those laws. Um, it needs to be said, healthy societies do not ban books, and they don't ban ideas, they don't pass laws. So, 
um, I couldn't, I could not have predicted that, right? That the project would be legislated against. It is illegal uh, by law to teach the 1619 project in public schools in Texas. It is illegal to teach the 1619 project in public schools in Georgia. Uh, it is prohibited by the State Department of Ed to teach the 1619 project in public schools in Florida. These are three of our most populous states. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I could not have imagined mm -hmm. that a work of journalism would be that fearsome um, that it would be legislated against. Mm -hmm. But I'll also say outside of the Pulitzer is probably my greatest honor. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, so can you, can you comment briefly on, there was um, um, you know, what happened with the fallout from the progressive historian yes. five that uh, we discussed. And then there was another one um, who was a fact checker who happened to be a black woman mm -hmm. at Northwestern. And so can you, can you talk a little bit about like how you responded to that? Because I'm kind of sure I'm thinking that you kind of expected something like that from the Sean Valencia's of the world and stuff like that, right? But from this black woman, I mean, so how did that, like how did you like process that for lack of a better term? Mm -hmm. So um, first I want to deal with the, the five. If you don't know the story, five historians that many consider to be progressive historians um, circulated a letter. Well, first they tried to get other historians to sign on to it, disputing certain facts in the project, disputing the overall framing of the project, uh, claiming that there were factual errors in the project. Um, and when they couldn't get other historians to sign on to it, they, they published, we actually published the letter in full at the New York Times, um, really detracting from the project. And the key things were we were wrong about slavery in the American Revolution. Um, we accused Lincoln of being racist. Oh. <laughs> Who uh, wanted to send us back to Africa, that's, that's right. <laughs> that's not racist though, that, that was for our best interest. Um, <laughs> which we actually don't, I don't accuse in the essay uh, Lincoln of being racist, but I do say he didn't believe in black equality, so you take that <laughs> how you want. Um, anyway, so I, I wasn't expecting, um, I ex again, I expected critique. I, I knew that there would be historians, one, we do different type of work, right? What historians do and what a journalist do is not the same thing. Historian will never write an essay spanning 400 years. They don't make big sweeping That's claims, right? right? They That's do. Right work that is very incremental, that's very tight, very, the rhetoric, they don't use rhetoric, they try right. not to. Right. Um, so we weren't doing the same thing, and I knew that there were always going to be some folks who, historians who were like, oh, I think that argument was too strong, I wouldn't have connected these two things, and that is fine, because that's what historians do all the time, right? Historians publish something, and then other historians will publish um, you know, an article say, critiquing what was published all within uh, the realm of, of what I expected and, and what should happen. Uh, but these historians didn't do that, right? They didn't contact me and say, I think there's an error here, you should correct it. They tried to secretly discredit the project. They tried to circulate a letter whom other historians leaked to us, right? Um, in order to discredit the project. So we have to separate real critique and why would you respond in that way? To this day, none of those historians have ever reached out to me. Wow. They went to my bosses and they went to, frankly, white men at the New York Times <laughs> who didn't even work on the project. <laughs> right. But not to me. Right, right. Um, and this is the thing I think is important in the Pacific Northwest, 
which is you can be progressive on everything but race. Boom. Boom. Okay? So they are progressive. They are progressive, but uh, historians are like journalists like, or, and are like anybody in this room. They're human beings. And we want to think at, of the field of historiography as a science, but it's not. And there are many progressive white historians who are just invested, as invested in the idea of American exceptionalism. Right. Um, if you look at the, this is going to get way too granular for most of y'all, but if you look at the field of early American history, it is not diverse. Because black scholars who wanted to focus on slavery, who wanted to focus on the hypocrisy of our founding, couldn't rise up in the ranks. They were stopped by the gatekeepers who also want to protect this idea that we are a fundamentally good That's nation right. founded right. on great ideals and That's principles. Right. That's right. And downplay what slavery meant. Um, so that was what that critique was about. Now, I have, I have owned up that I, I wish uh, in my language about the period of the American Revolution, I had been more precise with my language, that by not being as precise as I should have been, um, I opened the door for the type of critique that uh, allow people to try to discredit the project. Um, and in the book, I've read 10 books just on the American Revolution. <laughs> that section is now expanded to be twice as long. Um, and all of the, the, uh, the history works that is based upon are cited, and actually all it did was allow me to strengthen my argument. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so the argument's actually more powerful than it was before, and I know more than it was before. Um, but then there was um, the black historian that you're talking about. And I won't lie, that, that one was actually uh, sort of devastating because um, she published an article in Political. I didn't know that she was a fact checker on the project. Um, she, she never told me that she had an issue. Mm. And instead, she published a piece um, that has been the most used piece against the project because mm -hmm. people want to discredit the project when they can say, a black woman said, you did this. Right, then it, it gave them a certain power of authority um, over the work of the project. And I just wish, this is what I'll say. Anybody who's ever published anything in here, I would, I would uh, dare anyone to put their work under the type of scrutiny that the 1619 Project has been yeah. under yeah. and see does it come away unscathed. That's right. That's right. When we published the book, I've never been so calm at publication in my life, right? Because usually when you publish, for me, it's a three-week span of time mm -hmm where I don't want to check my email or answer my phone because I'm waiting for someone to tell you you got something wrong, right? That's devastating. As a journalist, like, all we have is our credibility. And once, you know, so you don't, normally it's, it's, it's not a celebration when I publish. It's, it's, it's a type of deep anxiety where I'm worried that I, I just didn't, I, I got some fact wrong. But when the book published, I'm like, there's literally nothing else y'all could say that hasn't been said. <laughs> This has been so scrutinized, mm -hmm. and we had to be so careful um, that I was perfectly calm upon publication. Mm -hmm. And so I guess I say all that to say um, this project was deeply personal to me. I cared a lot. I gained like 20 pounds working on this project. When people say, what was your self-care? I was like, drinking and eating. <laughs> um, <laughs> Which I've learned is not actually self-care. <laughs> um, 
But it meant, like, <laughs> it's the most important work of my life. And I, I wanted, you know, this, this work is a love song to our people and it meant so much. So to have people not in good faith try to critique it, but in bad faith to try to discredit it, um, there were like devastating moments, and and that Leslie Harris piece was one of those devastating moments. Okay. It really was. Okay. So thanks for asking me that question. Yeah, yeah no worries. Because I'm like, hey, you know what? No, don't boo me. Stop, right? I'm like, wait a second. I told him he could ask it. I'm yeah, playing. yeah. I, told I, him he could I, ask I looked it. her up, and I'm like, whoa, this is a black woman. Oh, wait a second, this ain't cool, right? But uh, I will also say though, um, in her defense, if. So the headline is political. The headline was shit, because that's, you know, it's political. Um, political, <laughs> the publication. Yeah. Um, but the article was, like historians write, very nuanced. The article critiques the five historians mm -hmm. for ignoring slavery, right? Mm -hmm. For downplaying slavery. Mm -hmm. um, and it says, you know, we, I wish Nicole would have been more careful here, or mm -hmm. I didn't agree with her interpretation there. But, as y'all also know, nobody reads the articles. Mm -hmm. They read the headline, mm -hmm. and that's all that they, mm -hmm. that they needed to know. And so I think that she felt she was doing something that was normative to the field, right. which right. is you publish, I publish a critique. Right. None of us could have known how politicized this project would become mm -hmm. and how politicized her critique would become. Mm -hmm. So I don't think her intent, her intent was not to discredit the project. Mm -hmm. She thought she was helping. Mm -hmm. Thank you. So this is the last substantive question. Okay. Um, I got the little card over there. So, uh, it's, so what's next? Like what? Like what's next on your agenda? Yeah. Um, so the 1619 project has is just taken over my my whole life, um, which I, I could not have imagined when I pitched the project, what the project would would become. So right now we are filming the 1619 documentary. Um, <laughs> yeah. And if you if you listen to the podcast, which most young people think 1619 is a podcast, <laughs> not a, a written project. Um, <laughs> It's, it's, the documentary is a six part series and um, it's gonna air on uh, ABC Hulu and Hulu and I'm very excited about that. So I'm spending most of my time these days working on the documentary. All right, yeah, unbelievable. <laughs> okay, so uh, here my script says, it says Chris and uh, so I follow with, well, unfortunately, Nicole, Looks like we've run out of time. <laughs> <laughs> thank you for joining us at the Crosscut Festival this year. It's been a pleasure. And thanks to all of you who joined us tonight. Let's give Nicole a hand. And that's it for today's episode. I'd like to thank Nicole for the talk, as well as Christopher, who, for the record, is a board member for Crosscut parent company, Cascade Public Media. If you enjoyed this conversation and would like to attend another one like it, go to crosscut.com events. That's where you'll find all of our upcoming events. This episode of Crosscut Talks was produced by Sarah Bernard and engineered by Resty Bacall and Victoria Ralph. The event was produced by Jake Newman and Andrea O'Meara, and Anne Krisnovich managed our audience engagement. You can subscribe to Crosscut Talks wherever you listen. 
And if you like the show, please review us. It helps other people find us. For the latest political, environmental, and culture news from the Pacific Northwest, visit CrossCut.com. And if you would like to support the work that we do at CrossCut, whether it's the live events we host every month or the in-depth reporting we deliver every day, go to CrossCut.com membership. In addition to supporting our journalism, members receive complete access to the on-demand programming of Seattle's PBS station, KCTS 9. Crosscut Talks is a product of Cascade Public Media. I'm Mark Bumgarten. We'll be back soon with another conversation.